Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 27, The Democracy of Cleisthenes. It appears that there were no immediate political problems after the expulsion of Hippias as tyrant, probably owing to the fact that the Pisistridids had virtually left Solon's constitution intact, apart from ensuring their control over the eponymous archonship, that is. However, Athens was not politically stable just yet. They were still occupied militarily by the Spartans, as Cleisthenes had weaseled his way into a power-sharing agreement with Cleomenes. In driving Hippias from power, the co-rulers had a single, common aim, but Cleisthenes wanted an Athens free from tyranny and the return to Eupatridae dominance, whereas Cleomenes wanted Athens on a short Spartan leash. It only took a couple of years for the split to become formal, resulting in a serious political clash between two aristocratic-led factions. There is no way of knowing how many other powerful political families were involved on either side, or if there were other factions. But in 508 BC, Cleomenes officially backed Cleisthenes' opponent, a rival noble named Isagoras, for the archonship of 508-507 BC. Their struggle is reminiscent of the rivalry and the infighting between the aristocratic leaders immediately following Solon's self-imposed exile from Athens. The ex-archon, Cleisthenes, wished to prevent Isagoras' election, and therefore his eventual membership of the Areopagus. Clearly, both Cleisthenes and Isagoras regarded the post-tyranny political situation as an opportunity to return to the normal pre-tyranny style of politics. This view is reinforced by the fact that all of the main sources either state or strongly imply that they were aided by their hetairoi, or aristocratic supporters. The word literally means followers. Therefore, this clash was an old-fashioned power struggle between two ambitious faction leaders. Isagoras ran on a platform of removing citizenship from those enfranchised by Solon and the tyrants. Cleisthenes opposed his plan. Rumors quickly spread that Isagoras, a former friend of Hippias, had loaned his wife to Cleomenes in exchange for his support. Despite these allegations and his unpopularity, Isagoras still managed to win the election. No doubt the many well-armed Spartan hoplites present throughout the city helped ensure this outcome. Isagoras immediately took away Solon's boule of 400, changing it back to the old boule of 300, with access only to the aristocrats. He also followed through with his platform and scrutinized the citizens' list, a process called diapsephismos, and removed all of those that he thought should not be entitled to citizenship since their father was not an Athenian. Two things are not clear about this, though. The identity of these threatened citizens and the means by which they were disenfranchised. With regards to their identity, it is possible that some of these new citizens were foreign mercenaries whom Pisistratus had used to seize power and who were employed throughout the Pisistratid regime for security and thus had received citizenship in the process. The other new citizens were probably the descendants of those skilled artisans whom Solon had attracted to Athens by the offer of citizenship. As for the means of disenfranchisement, it is possible that the answer lies within the kinship-based fratries, or brotherhoods, of which membership was the only formal proof of citizenship. However, under the Pisistratids, 
Exclusion from the fratries would not have prevented the new citizens from exercising their rights of citizenship by, for example, attending the ecclesia. But the expulsion of Hippias would have left them vulnerable, and the revision of the citizen roles by the fratries, confining citizenship to members of the fratries only, would have deprived them of their citizenship. The people were not happy, and Cleisthenes would not accept this defeat. For most of the next year, he ruminated on how to win over the people and to reverse the actions that Isagoras had taken. Finally, shortly before the election for the archonship of 507-506 BC, he spoke before the Demos in the Ecclesia. There, he argued that none of Athens' previous forms of government had worked, meaning the monarchy, the Eupatridae infighting, the tyranny, and now foreign domination. They didn't give the city the long-term stability or enlightened moral governance that it deserved. Although Solon had granted all Athenians a voice in the citizens' assembly, Cleisthenes was proposing something more than what Solon had appointed, that the citizens of Athens bring forward, debate, vote upon, and enact all of the laws and policies of the city themselves, without recourse to leaders of any kind. The power would reside in the people, and the city would become a democratia. This was radical and untried and required a degree of trust that no previous ruler had ever given to his citizens. It was met with a mixture of stunned befuddlement and violent opposition, particularly amongst the entrenched elites. He no doubt had easily won the backing of those recently disenfranchised people and must have persuaded most of the others because in the ensuing election, Alcmion was victorious. Obviously from his name, he was a kinsman of Cleisthenes, of the Alcmionidae. These proposed reforms and the election of his political enemy's protege to the archonship angered Isagoras so much that he called upon Cleomenes, who supported a more traditional aristocratic government, to come help. They did so officially on the pretext of the Alcmionidae curse, though it was clearly politically based. Thus, in 507 BC, word arrived from Cleomenes that Cleisthenes was to be banned from Athens. Fearing for his safety, he fled the city. Isagoras was now unrivaled in power within the city of Athens. Still holding the office of eponymous archon, as his term had not yet ended, he quickly began to act like a tyrant. He banished some 700 families of the Alcmionidae out of Athens, including the archon-elect Alcmion, and seized their property. Before long, Cleomenes returned to Athens to oversee a further purge of anti-Spartan elements and to brainstorm with Isagoras on a rewrite of the Athenian constitution. The two leaders attempted to dissolve the boule and entrust the offices of state to all of those in Isagoras's faction. This upset the Athenian citizens, and spontaneously they besieged Cleomenes and his soldiers on the Acropolis together with Isagoras and his supporters. The siege was maintained for a full two days before Cleomenes relented on the third day. The revolt of the Athenian demos against such an unwelcome constitution forced Cleomenes to retire back to Sparta in disgrace. The humiliated Spartan king was allowed safe conduct home for him and his soldiers. In addition, Isagoras was deposed as archon, but somehow fled safely into exile, maybe dressed as a Spartan. His supporters, however, weren't so lucky, as 300 of them were put to death. In summer 507 BC, Cleisthenes and hundreds of other exiles were subsequently recalled back to Athens. Alcmion assumed the archonship, but Cleisthenes was the unofficial leader of Athens. He was given this unofficial power on the condition that he implemented the program 
that he had previously brought forward in the Ecclesia. Knowing that a new constitution was necessary for Athens, collectively the Athenians decided to join their leader in a leap of faith. It's remarkable timing since the city's position had never been more precarious. Everyone knew that beyond the city's gates, there were two former tyrants and a Spartan king, all nursing powerful grudges and plotting their revenge. We will cover how those events unfold in a short while, but for now, let's turn to the reform program that Cleisthenes implemented. Scholarly opinion is divided about the motives that inspired Cleisthenes to pass his reforms, ranging from self-serving opportunism to high-minded altruism, with emphasis on one aspect of the reforms at the expense of the others to support the respective viewpoint. However, a politician's motives are rarely simple, even when they can be deduced with reasonable accuracy, and are more likely to reflect a combination of self-interest and public spiritness. And this appears to be the case in respect to Cleisthenes. Herodotus states that Cleisthenes only championed the previously ignored people when Isagoras was getting the better of him. And in this context, a certain degree of opportunism can be suspected in his response to the problem of the new citizens. He had re-enrolled all those who had their citizenship revoked by Isagoras in order to guarantee their goodwill. He would have naturally expected the resultant gratitude to be translated into support for himself and his faction, especially at the time of the elections for the eponymous archon and other important posts. Nevertheless, it is hard to believe that Cleisthenes needed to have embarked on such complex reforms if he merely desired to promote the interests of the Alcmeonidae. The history of the 6th century BC, including his own experience of recent events, had made Cleisthenes appreciate fully the nature of the problems that had so grievously troubled Athens, that being the intense rivalry of the aristocratic-led factions in their struggle for power, which had caused much political instability. Solon's earlier attempt to resolve the problem had failed because he had not tackled the source of the factionalism, as political strength still laid within the clan structure. It was in the local fratries, and therefore in the Ionian tribes, that the aristocratic clans were able to exert their political dominance due to their social status, economic strength, and religious leadership, and thus maintain their hold over different regions of Attica. Thus, the center of Cleisthenes' reforms focused on the gerrymandering of the four traditional Ionian tribes of Athens. In order to forestall strife between the traditional clans, which had led to tyranny in the first place, Cleisthenes needed to deprive the clans of any political significance and substitute a new tribal organization. So he changed their composition from four to ten and based them off of their area of residence, rather than their familial relations. He also gave them all new names. Herodotus says that in renaming their tribes, Cleisthenes was imitating his maternal grandfather, Cleisthenes of Sicyon as you recall from episode 16. However, he didn't rename these tribes after farm animals, but instead they were based on one of the founding heroes of Athens. These heroes all had their own priests and sanctuaries, and their statues stood in front of the boule in the agora. In any event, each tribe was made up of members from each of the three geographical regions. The city of Athens itself, or Astu, the rest of the coastline, or Peralia, and the inland, or Mesogaia. Each of these areas had a subdivision called a tritis, the plural was tritiais, or thirds. There were ten tritiais in each region, with thirty in all, and each tribe only had one tritis from the coast, one from the inland, and one from the city. Each tritis was formed of local communities called demoi, or deems. 
Some are made up of the original village, while others were made up of a series of villages. Each tritis ranged from as few as one to as many as nine deems, which were usually close together geographically, but that was not always the case. These defined deems probably already existed in rural Attica in some form from the Dark Ages onward, as we have discussed, but they had to be established in the city and in its suburbs for the first time by Cleisthenes. It is thought that there may have been 139 total deems, though this is still a matter of debate. Each treatise also was named after its most powerful deem. Each deem had its own offices and assemblies. The elected leader of a deem was called a demarcos, and he had to be re-elected every year by the deem assembly, which is a miniature version of the ecclesia. Every Athenian citizen was entitled to participate in the assembly of his deem. It supplied the perfect training ground for those who wished to take an active role in the decision-making of the state at a national level. Thus, the deem was essential for the development of the radical democracy of the classical period. The experience of participating in the deem assemblies and serving as a demarcos gradually engendered among the ordinary citizens the self-confidence and the self-belief in their ability to make an effective contribution to the government of Athens. An 18-year-old male was enrolled in the deem of his father, and this enrollment automatically assigned him to the tribe of that deem and indicated his citizen status. Thus, citizenship was ascertained by going to the deem now. Sons of Athenian parents not legally married were also enrolled in deems and recognized as citizens, but as illegitimate children, called nathoi. However, they were still barred from membership in a fratria, limiting their rights of inheritance and preventing them from holding the archonship and priesthoods. Cleisthenes, though, did change the nomenclature in which an Athenian was designated to make it more demotic. For example, instead of Cleisthenes, son of Megacles, it now was Cleisthenes from X, with X being the name of his deem. This allowed the concealment of the identity of new citizens so that they would not reveal the new citizens by calling them by their father's name. This was a direct attack on the influence of birth and inserted that one's political standing in the polis was now based on merit. All of this reduced localism and made the deem the decisive element in the state. Essentially, Cleisthenes removed all political functions from the fratries, allowing them to continue in a purely social capacity and established the deem as the main political and religious institution of local government. Cleisthenes' main motivation in these reforms was probably to reduce the influence of traditional nobility and allow himself and the Alcmeonidae, who gained their wealth through commerce, more freedom of political maneuver in a more stable political system. Aristotle states that the selection of the three tritiates for each tribe was carried out by the drawing of lots, but archaeological evidence concerning the size of the tritiates and the location of some of the tritiates in certain tribes suggests that a deliberate manipulation of the selection process was undertaken. Although they were not all equal in geographical size, the idea was that every tritis would be the same size in terms of population. But unless all of the 30 tritiates or all of the tritiates in each of the three geographical areas were equal in size, selection of the tritiates by the drawing of lots would have resulted in a wide variation in the size of the tribes. Therefore, either Aristotle was mistaken, possibly because he was influenced by the widespread use of lot in the classical democracy, and assumed that it must have been used in the most fundamental of Cleisthenes' democratic reforms, or Cleisthenes claimed to be using the drawing of lots, while secretly manipulating the allocation of the tritiates. At the same time, Cleisthenes, though, needed to mix up the population, because only the artificial creation of ten new tribes with a radical reorganization of the citizen body, virtually a refounding of Athens, 
could provide the necessary fragmentation of the aristocratic stranglehold on the regional power bases. In doing this, the result was that the traditional factions of the hill, coast, and plain were done away with. He also ensured that local nobles no longer could easily control election results just by exercising influence on the poorer people in their immediate area. At the same time, the mixing up of three different areas of Attica within each tribe brought a greater cohesion between different groups of Athenians and continued the process of the unification of the state. The gerrymandering of the new tribes of Cleisthenes also led to a change in the military organization. Each of the ten tribes contributed a regiment of hoplites and a squadron of horsemen. The army, which had previously been led by a single polemarchus, now was led by a board of ten strategoi, one for each tribe. However, the ten strategoi were elected and not necessarily put in charge of the tribe where they were from. They also could be re-elected in order to maintain continuity in foreign policy. Ten officers in each tribe, known as taxiarchoi, were also elected by the ecclesia to serve as the second-in-command to the ten strategoi. These were the only offices that were elected and not determined by lot, because military leadership was very critical and the most experienced men needed to be in charge. Thus, because of this, the board of ten strategoi was destined to become the most prestigious executive body in Athens, but at first, they were merely the commanders of the tribal regiments. It must have taken some time to bring this reform into full working order, though, as the first list of deemsmen on the new system decided the deem for all of their descendants. A man might change his home and reside in another deem, but he still remained a member of the deem to which he originally belonged. All of Attica was included in the system, except Eleutheri and Oropus on the Theban frontier, which were treated as subject districts and belonged to no tribe. But the significance of this reorganization lay in its connection with what Cleisthenes did next. Cleisthenes had realized that stability would only come if the political base was broadened to include more citizens, and as Herodotus stated, by adding the people to his side, he gained the upper hand by far over his political opponents. Thus, he also changed the boule from 300 to 500. Now it was open to all male citizens, instead of just the aristocrats. The Areopagus and College of Nine Archons were not disturbed in favor of this new council for the Demos. Membership on the boule came through some combination of allotment and election with 50 from each of the new 10 tribes, and each citizen could only serve on the boule for two non-consecutive terms. It seems that after the candidates were chosen by lot, they were then voted on by the members of the current boule. This way, the Athenians could ensure that those who were unfit for governance would not be in charge. This investigation to confirm their legal right to hold office was called dokamasia. Before they entered into office, the new members of the boule swore what is called the bouletic oath, which stated that they would advise what is best for the city and that they will be responsible for the acts that they lay down. It also included a provision that they would not put to vote any motion contrary to the laws. The boule, in a sense, became the supreme administrative authority in the state. In conjunction with the various magistrates, it managed most of the public affairs. An effective control was exerted on the archons and other magistrates, who were obliged to present reports to the boule and receive their orders. All the finances of the state were practically in its hands, and ten new finance officers, called apodecti, one from each tribe, later acted under its direction. It seems, moreover, from the beginning to have been invested with judicial powers, 
in matters concerning the public finance and with the right of fining public officials. Furthermore, the Boule acted as a ministry of public works and even as a ministry of war. It may also be regarded as a ministry of foreign affairs, for it conducted negotiations with foreign states and received their envoys in order to establish their reasons for coming to Athens. However, it had no powers of declaring war or concluding a treaty. These powers resided solely in the ecclesia. But the boule was not only an administrative body, but had the initiative in all lawmaking as it prepared the legislation, called probulesis, to be discussed in the ecclesia. It could either be put forward in the form of recommendation, called probulema, or without any definitive guidance. Meetings of the ecclesia took place weekly on the Pinix Hill, which sits directly across from the Acropolis. At these meetings, all male citizens were allowed to vote. A decision was made by a show of hands. The bills proposed could be rejected, passed, or returned for amendments. A motion in the ecclesia was called a cephisma, the pluralist cephismata. However, no proposal could be voted on in the ecclesia unless it had already been considered in the boule. So all the brand new proposals on the floor must be sent back to the boule first. Although the boule held this clout, ultimate decisions were still now being made in the ecclesia by the people, as opposed to the boule from the aristocratic times. Since 500 was an unwieldy number, it is obvious that the administrative duties of state could not have efficiently been conducted with all members of the boule in attendance. Thus, Cleisthenes created a system to combat this. A special committee, called the Pyrtanes, or executives of the boule, was comprised of a tenth of its members, so 50 men, and represented the whole boule for a tenth of the year. An Athenian year was 360 days, so they would thus represent the boule for 36 days. Their term of office was called a Pyrtani. It changed 10 times each year in order to incorporate all of the members. The Pratanes met daily to deal with the regular, routine aspects of the management of Athens, and a different man was the chief executive each day, chosen by lot. They were obliged to live permanently during the Pratani in the Tholos, a round building on the south side of the Agora, near the Bulaterion, or Council Hall, at the public's expense. The old Pratanion still remained in use as the office and residence of the eponymous Archon and the hearth of the city, though. The boule instituted by Cleisthenes shows that he understood the principle of representative government, and the boule is an excellent example of representation with a careful distribution of seats according to the size of the electorates, meaning 50 from each of the 10 tribes, and it was practically the governing body of the state. But although they understood this principle, he was hesitant to entrust to a representative assembly sovereign powers of legislation. The reason mainly lies in the fact that owing to the relatively small size of the city-state, the ecclesia in which every citizen who chose could attend was a more practicable institution. Secondly, he held the fundamental principle that supreme legislative power should be exercised by the people. With that in mind, it did have decisive influence on legislation, as the ratification of laws given by the ecclesia to the proposals sent down by the boule was more times than not a mere formality. But cooperation between the boule and the ecclesia was indispensable to the making of laws, and thus the boule's function is very unique and cannot be comparable to other representative political bodies, such as the Roman Senate, which coincidentally was developing at the same time. Cleisthenes also retained the Salonian restrictions on eligibility for the higher offices of state. 
it is possible that he may have set the hip ace, in this respect, on a level politically equal with the Pentacosium of Dimni. But the two lower classes were still excluded from the archonship. But this conservatism of Cleisthenes might easily be misjudged. We must remember that since the days of Solon, time itself had been doing the work of a democratic reformer. The money value of 500 medimni had a much lower rating at the end than it had been at the beginning of the 6th century BC. Trade had increased and the middle class had grown richer. In addition, he did not reduce the power of the archonship, which had been restored to its former level of importance upon the fall of the tyranny. And thus, authority and prestige were further enhanced by the restoration of direct election by the people and the removal of interference by the tyrants. The Areopagus still retained its important powers, which is hardly surprising as Cleisthenes himself was a member of that powerful body. But as most of its members had been the nominees of the Pisistratids, its prestige was temporarily weakened. One of the most peculiar and central parts of the Athenian political system was that of ostracism. Aristotle assigns its introduction to Cleisthenes, but scholars still argue whether it may or may not have been introduced by him, since its first use was not until 20 years later. Regardless, at the beginning of every year, the citizens voted whether to ostracize or not that year. Most years there was no ostracism. If a majority said yes, then in March, or during the 8th Pritani, they voted for whom in the Agora, which was fenced off with 10 gates, one for each tribe, just for that day. Every male citizen who wished to vote took the name of the man they wanted to ostracize to the gate corresponding to their tribe. They recorded his name on a broken piece of pottery called an ostracon, or the plural is ostraca, hence the name ostracism. They then stayed trapped in the Agora until voting was complete. If fewer than 6,000 votes were cast, nobody would get ostracized. If more than that, then the person with a majority was exiled from Attica for 10 years. He was given 10 days to put his affairs in order before the ostracism was implemented. During his 10 years of exile, no harm happened to his property or family. In fact, he still had full control over his property and income and was allowed to be in contact with his family and friends, provided that he remained outside of Attica, meaning he could stand on a boat on the shoreline, for instance. Afterwards, he could return home and resume his full rights of citizenship, meaning that he could run for public office again if he wished. It was as if nothing had ever happened. There was no precedent for the ostracism anywhere else in antiquity, though. There are two schools of thought concerning Cleisthenes' motive for introducing this law. The first holds that Cleisthenes was moved by a high-minded desire to bring political stability to Athens. His clash with Isagoras had resulted in the invasion of Attica by a Spartan army under Cleomenes, who attempted to interfere directly and forcefully in the constitution of Athens. Ostracism was introduced, therefore, to prevent a potential conflict from reaching such a crisis. Aristotle states the example of Pisistratus, who had abused his position as a popular leader and general to become tyrant, had produced among the people a suspicion of those in power, and that ostracism had been enacted to stop such an occurrence in the future. Thucydides says that ostracism came about because of the fear and insecurity that the Athenians had towards their new government. Many people in Athens, especially the aristocrats, did not like this new government, so the democratic supporters had a lot to fear. Every person who was ostracized in Athenian history, as we will see, was a leading figure that gained a lot of power. Thus, ostracism was their way of ridding themselves of anyone that they considered a threat as a potential tyrant 
or someone they believed may have been plotting with the Spartans. The second school of thought believes that Cleisthenes planned to use ostracism as a factional weapon to be wielded against his political enemies, weakening the opposing faction with the removal of its leader. However, it seems the first opinion is more likely, because ostracism is not an easy weapon to use for the elimination of political opponents. There was only one opportunity provided each year, and there was further difficulty trying to persuade the people to vote for the holding of an ostracism. In addition, it was risky business, as the people might vote for the ostracism of the instigator, and not his intended victim. There was probably a better chance of ruining the career of a political opponent by prosecuting him in the law courts. Without the reforms of Cleisthenes, Athens would never have acquired the political unity and stability that were essential preconditions for becoming a state of the first rank in the Greek world. His reform of the deems and the tribes was designed to break the overriding regional power of the aristocratic clans and their factions by ending the formal political functions of the fratries and the old tribes. He effectively destroyed the destabilizing political power of the factions, but did so without overthrowing the political leadership of the aristocracy, whose expertise was essential for the conduct of public affairs and the army. And by means of the Boulay of 500 and the Ecclesia, he created a balanced constitution, where the people's political power was sufficient to act as an equal counterweight to that of the aristocracy. Many scholars proclaim that these early reforms were not very democratic. The Thetes, who were the majority of the Demos, initially were excluded. No pay for government service kept the poor from significant participation in political life of Athens at this time. The whole program supported the Zugatai, the hoplite farmers. Thus, it was a hoplite democracy. But by the mid-5th century BC, when the Thetes had the right of the Ecclesia, that was when it became a true democracy. As true of a democracy that it could have been, since women and slaves were always excluded. Regardless, nothing of the sort had happened ever before. The rest of the Greeks were ignorant and horrified. In fact, the Athenians did not refer to it as a democratia, meaning the power of the people. That was what the other Greeks referred to it as. Herodotus, who was a pro-Athenian from Asia Minor, referred to it as isonomia, meaning equality before the law. By the mid-5th century BC, it was referred to as isogoria, meaning equality of opportunity to address the political body. Also, there is good reason to believe that Cleisthenes used this word to define the essence of his new constitution, and as a political propaganda slogan behind which the Athenian people could unite in order to secure their acceptance of his constitutional reform. It is probably the case that Cleisthenes was also responsible for the new formal Athenian word for a statute, that being nomos, in place of the older thesmos. The latter word was used to describe laws that had been imposed upon the people by the ruling aristocracy, or by the gods, whereas nomos refers to laws that became custom after they had been agreed upon by the people in their democratic ecclesia. In any case, the idea that persuasion, rather than force or status, should constitute the mechanism for political decision-making in the emerging Athenian democracy fit well with the spirit of the intellectual changes that were taking place during the late Archaic Age, those being the idea that people had to present plausible reasons for their recommendations. This development has proven to be one of the most influential legacies of Greek civilization. Athens now had become a democracy, and the new government was hardly established before it was called upon to prove its capacity. Herodotus says that the Athenians, fresh off their Cleisthenaic reforms, attempted to forge an alliance with the Persians, 
because as he put it, they knew that they were now at war with Cleomenes and the Spartans. It was their fear of Cleomenes' hostility that had persuaded the Athenians to seek military help from the Persians, and thus made Athenian-Persian relations a major political issue for the first time at Athens. We will discuss in greater detail in a future episode, but during the second half of the 6th century BC, the huge empire of Persia had extended its frontiers to the very borders of mainland Greece. The Greeks on the western coast of Asia Minor had originally been conquered by Croesus, the king of Lydia, but they came under Persian control after he was defeated and conquered in battle. Furthermore, the Persians also subdued Thrace, incorporating it within the Persian Empire, and had accepted the submission of Macedonia. Thus, at this point, Persia could be viewed as either a potential enemy or an ally for the Greeks. So Athens turned to Persia as an ally. Herodotus does not reveal the identity of the politician who proposed this military alliance with Persia, possibly due to ignorance or because he wished to protect a political reputation in the light of subsequent events. However, it seems possible to believe that Cleisthenes, the leader of the Alcmeonidae, was the driving force behind this policy. His influence was at its peak, owing to the popularity of his democratic reforms, and he personally, his family, and his political supporters had the most to lose if the Athenians were defeated by Cleomenes, and a narrow oligarchy under Isagoras was imposed. If this is correct, then the first link was forged between the Alcmeonidae and the policy of cooperation with the Persians. An Athenian delegation arrived at Sardis, one of Persia's capitals, in the summer of 507 BC, where they met Artaphernes, the younger brother of the great king Darius, and satrap of Ionia and Lydia. A satrap was similar to a provincial governor. According to Herodotus, when the envoys spoke according to their instructions, Artaphernes inquired as to who were the Athenians. It is hard to believe, although the Athenians and even the Greeks were small potatoes compared to the mighty Persian Empire, that a provincial governor of Asia Minor didn't know who the Athenians were. The Persians knew of only one relationship with other states, however, so Artaphernes asked the Athenian ambassadors to give the customary donation of earth and water, which represented political and military submission to Persia. This meant that they would be liable to pay tribute and to supply military forces when required. The ambassadors, not knowing the symbolism of what they were doing, agreed to this request. Now that they were a subject of Persia, they had the right to request aid in their conflict with the Spartans. Artaphernes said that he would help, but only if they would put down their new government and install Hippias as a satrap of Athens, like what was the norm for the rest of the Greek polis in Asia Minor at the time. As we discussed last episode, Hippias had courted favor with the Persian satrap after he was exiled. Naturally, having just rid themselves of the former tyrant, the ambassadors responded with a resounding no and left abruptly for Athens, which as you can expect, greatly angered Artaphernes. Athens was an entirely different city from when the ambassadors had left it though. They had been sent at the same time as Cleisthenes was recalled to reform the government because the Athenians were hesitant to bank everything on Cleisthenes' untried approach alone. But in the months since then, the city had revolutionary fervor and committed to his reforms, so that when the delegation reported back on their tokens of submission and the Persian command for them to resume the tyranny of Hippias, the city was outraged and the messengers were strongly criticized for their actions. 
They didn't want neither native nor foreign despots ruling them, now that they were ruling themselves. This criticism of the messengers reveals naivety on the part of the Athenians. If they genuinely thought the Persians would offer them a military alliance on any other terms than submission, Athens was hardly likely to be viewed by the Persians as any great military power, least of all when they were appealing to them for help. It is worth noting that the alliance with Persia was not formally rejected by the Athenians, but was ignored as they sought to bury this whole shameful episode, because Cleisthenes, who must have anticipated, if it was his policy, such a demand from Persia, had recognized the political danger to himself by continuing to support such a manifestly unpopular policy. But their refusal of Artaphernes' command meant that Athens had technically just entered into a state of war with Persia too. A war that wouldn't be fought for quite some time yet, but one that will get here abruptly, and soon enough. Hippias had disarmed every Athenian and paid for an army of mercenaries instead of using hoplite soldiers. So with the threat of another Spartan invasion, priority number one was the rearmament of the Athenian people. All weapons previously seized were returned to their owners, and enough additional weapons were manufactured to arm every citizen so they could fight for their polis. As we have discussed, the newly instituted tribal structure served as the basis for the new Athenian army, whose backbone was now made up of ordinary citizens that were motivated by the freedom and self-determination that they had been entrusted. Rich and poor fought side by side as members of the same tribe with the same goal. The time frame for this entire revamp of Athenian society, military structure, and mental outlook was incredibly brief, and it had to be, because trouble was knocking at the door. Less than a year after this transformation had begun in 506 BC, the Athenians received word that Cleomenes was leading a force of the Peloponnesian League across the Isthmus of Corinth into Attica, alongside his fellow king, Demaratus, who had succeeded his father Ariston to the Spartan throne a decade prior in 515 BC. Cleomenes' desire to avenge the humiliation, which he had recently endured at the hands of the Athenian people, reveal Sparta's current status as the leading power of Greece. Herodotus writes, Cleomenes summoned an army from the whole of the Peloponnese, not stating the reason for its gathering, but desiring to take vengeance on the people of Athens and to establish Isagoras as tyrant. This quotation is interesting on two accounts. First, the Spartan armed forces were so powerful that the allies felt obliged to compel with their orders even though the objective of the campaign was not stated. Second, the Spartans claim that they expelled tyrants as a matter of principle is exposed as an empty rhetoric. Cleomenes had convinced the Garousia that this war was just because Athens was being ruled by a mob and only they could free it. But he really just wanted to get revenge and install Isagoras as a puppet tyrant. Although Sparta traditionally opposed tyranny, it was a different story when it was their puppet tyrant. Cleomenes' aim was Eleusis, on the western border of Attica. To the northwest of Athens, the forces of Thebes had marched out on Athens as well, eager to avenge their recent loss of Plataea, and they were to seize Onoi and Hesiae, two deems on the Attic-Theban frontier. And to the northeast, the hoplites of Halkis crossed the narrow strait from Euboea to join the Attic assault. They were to raid the countryside. With the plan of attacking Athens on three sides, at the same moment, Cleomenes had engineered the encirclement of his greatest foe. The Athenians decided that their best hope was to deal with each separately, 
and the strongest first. So without delay, they marched to Eleusis to meet the Peloponnesian army. But when the Athenians arrived at Eleusis, they were shocked to find that they encountered no resistance. Upon learning that Cleomenes' aim was to install Asagoras as tyrant again, Corinth turned around and went home, since they had just expelled a tyranny less than a century earlier and were not supportive of instilling one in Athens. Furthermore, at this time, Agina was the most formidable commercial rival of Corinth, and it therefore didn't suit Corinthian interests to encourage the destruction of Agina's greatest enemy. This loss of Corinth, in itself, was a manageable loss as the Spartans still had the Athenians trapped on three sides and had superior numbers. But then there occurred a quarrel between the two Spartan kings. Apparently, Demaratus wasn't aware of Cleomenes' aims with Isagoras either, so he then voiced his own objections to both the restoration of a tyranny and the ongoing Spartan occupation that would accompany it. For him, Spartan mastery of the Peloponnesus was the limit of a reasonable ambition, and anything beyond that lay hubris, and destruction would surely follow. So he left for Sparta with a large portion of the army, at which point the rest of their allies abandoned Cleomenes too, realizing that this mission was pointless, seeing that the two Spartan kings couldn't even agree upon it. Thus, Cleomenes bitterly withdrew from the invasion back to Sparta. In the wake of this humiliating failure, the Spartans passed a law prohibiting both kings from campaigning together any longer, so that all Spartan forces were to be led by one king only, as we discussed in episode 22. The Athenians had no time to reflect upon the miracle that had just happened, as both Thebes and Halkis were still in Attica. The Thebans had seized Hisiae, and crossing the path of Mount Kitharon above it had taken Oenoi on the upper Attic slopes. When the Athenians marched north to deal with the Halkidians first, the Thebans withdrew into their own land and moved northwards too, in order to join the Halkidians. But the Athenians managed to intercept them en route near the Euripus Strait that separates Euboea and Attica. The ensuing battle was the first true test for their new army, and the outcome was a resounding victory for Athens. Herodotus reports that a vast number of Thebans were killed, 700 were taken prisoner, and the rest were driven back to Boeotia. On the same day, they then crossed the Euripus Strait into Euboea, for the Halkidians had retired to their island, and fought another battle. This one against the Halkidians was no less overwhelming than their first. It was such a crushing defeat that the Athenians were able to impose such a humiliating settlement, taking away chunks of land, called Claroi, on a large part of the Lantine Plain, where the Halkidian aristocrats had states. There, they planted 4,000 Athenian settlers on the land as clerooks, who retained their Athenian citizenship and acted as a garrison to keep watch on Halkis. They also took a number of Halkidian nobles as prisoners, and together with the Boeotian prisoners, they carried them off to Athens in chains. When they were later ransomed back for two minas each, the Athenians hung their fetters atop the Acropolis as trophies, which Herodotus reports was still visible during his time. They used a portion of that ransom to commission the sculpting of an immense bronze four-horse chariot, which prominently was displayed at the approach to the Acropolis, and was dedicated to the sons of Athens. This was the first time in history that an army fought not for a king, but for a political philosophy of personal freedom and equality before the law. In fact, according to Herodotus, Athens was not a great military power until after they received freedom from their democracy. Freedom called Eleutheria, 
is a central theme in his histories. Athens would soon follow its forced colonization of Euboea, with a similar push on the island of Salamis. New territory was also acquired on the border of Attica and Boeotia, with the annexation of Oropus. Previously, it had come under the control of Eretria, had adopted the Eretrian dialect, which it retained, and was the last part of Boeotia to be annexed by the Boeotian power of Thebes. This fertile little plain was destined to be a constant subject of discord between Boeotia and Athens, as it had before been a source of strife between Eretria and Boeotia, but it was now subject to Athens. However, the men of Oropus, like the men of Eleutheri, never became Athenian citizens. All these additions were clear symbols of the new pride and power of their democracy. But the Thebans were still lurking and wanted to take revenge on the Athenians, and they sent a mission to the oracle at Delphi to best come up with a plan in 505 BC. The Pythia, though, told them that they would not be the ones to achieve the revenge which they sought, and ordered them to ask those who are the closest. The Thebans interpreted this oracle to mean that they should seek an alliance with Athens' archenemy, Agena, in the Sardonic Gulf, on the grounds that they were the closest. The Agenetans didn't need much convincing to join up against their hated enemy, so they responded by waging an undeclared war on the Athenians. The Thebans thus attempted an attack on the Attic frontier, but were defeated once again by the Athenians. The Agenetans, though, while the Athenians were occupied with Thebes, had sailed in warships to Attica and laid waste to Thaleron, as well as to many deems along the rest of the coast, and thus inflicted great damage on the Athenians. But just as the Athenians were setting out to wage war against them, an oracle from Delphi came to them and advised them to refrain from responding to the crime of the Agenetans for the next 30 years. But in the 31st year, they should wage war against Agena, because they would be victorious, but if they began war immediately, they would suffer. At the sound of this oracle, the Athenians relented, albeit begrudgingly. Meanwhile, the Spartans had learned of the Alcmeonidae's bribery of the Delphic oracle. In addition, they were provoked by oracles that predicted that the Athenians would inflict many terrible injuries on them. Herodotus writes that as Cleomenes observed the Athenians growing in strength, he recognized that in freedom, the Athenians would become equal to the Spartans, but if repressed by tyranny, it would be weaker and willing to submit to their authority. So he sent for Hippias to come back from Sigeon on the Hellespont and made plans to invade Attica, but the expedition never materialized. In 504 BC, Cleomenes tried once again to raise an invasion force against Athens, this time with the goal of restoring Hippias as tyrant of Athens. However, the allies, led by Corinth once again, rejected the proposal in a meeting of the Peloponnesian League. A man named Socleus of Corinth gave a long-winded speech, at least according to Herodotus. In his speech, he denounced tyranny and goes into a long backstory on the Kypsilid tyranny that lasts several pages. Essentially, Herodotus uses this occasion as a long digression, as he so often does. The restoration of Hippias was thus thwarted, and when Hippias returned to Asia Minor from Sparta, he missed no opportunity to slander the Athenians to Artaphernes, and did all he could to bring about Athens' submission to himself and Darius. Two important monuments were raised or expanded for this new Athenian democracy in the waning years of the 6th century BC. First, there was the vast expansion of the Peninx Hill, the traditional meeting place of the Ecclesia 
that enabled it to hold up to 5,000 members. Second, a magnificent marble statue depicting the Athenian tyrannicides, Harmodius and Aristogiton, was constructed as these two were publicly lauded as early heroes of the democratic revolution. Cleisthenes didn't get a statue, though. One of the great ironies is that he was so successful at his aims that before long, the Athenians convinced themselves they didn't need him in the first place. His greatest triumph was followed almost immediately by the virtual obliteration of his role, and his name disappears from contemporary accounts. Did he get kicked out of power or just die from natural causes? Furthermore, we know very little about Athens from 505 to 500 BC, so could he have had some sort of connections with the Persians that we mentioned earlier, and that record was wiped out by the Alcmeonidae after they defeated the Persians, so as not to taint their reputation. Regardless, his achievements were enormous. Although Solon made all citizens equal before the law and reduced the influence of the landed aristocracy, Cleisthenes prepared the way for further reforms that would create a fully and direct democratic system of government in which all citizens could participate and everything he initiated lasted into the classical period, unlike those of Solon. That is why he is often credited with being the founder of Athenian democracy, although it had its roots almost a century earlier. Both set the foundation for the democracy to blossom during the 5th century BC. Another important takeaway from the waning years of the 6th century BC can be found in the dynamics of the Peloponnesian League. Its evolution from total Spartan dominance over its allies and the execution of foreign policy might seem, at first glance, to show a weakening of Sparta. But in reality, a genuine partnership had been formed in which, because the Peloponnesian allies had been given a safeguard against Sparta acting irresponsibly, there could be closer cooperation and greater trust between Sparta and its allies. The result was the growth of the most formidable alliance in Greece, which, as we will see, a generation later would supply the leadership and the backbone of the forces that saved Greece from Persian conquest. But before we get there, first, let's turn our attention back west. When we last left the Western Greeks, they were spreading rapidly across Sicily and eventually into North Africa, Spain, France, Corsica, and Sardinia. Because of this, they came into conflict with another new power that had been burgeoning in the Western Mediterranean. Throw in the old power of the Etruscans, and what do you get? A battle royale for supremacy in the Western Mediterranean. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 28, The Rise of Carthage. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry. The podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, 
There is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, and Patrick G. for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Ode to Orpheus from his album Apollo's Lyre. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.